We'll be in uh, Matthew chapter 28, verses 16 through 20. And actually, we'll be in Matthew chapter 28, verses 16 through 20 uh, for eight more weeks. So by the time we finish this, uh, it would, maybe we'll just be reciting this uh, to one another um, because we are in our series on the Great Commission. Uh, and this is our, our third week in this, uh, this series, and we are so excited about what God has for us over the course of this. But if you would, in honor of the reading of God's word, please stand uh, with me. Matthew, in uh, his gospel, records this moment, Jesus and his disciples. Then the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When, he, when they saw him, they worshipped him. But some doubted. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. This is the word of God for us, the people of God. Thanks be to God. I appreciate so much uh, what, what Ben said as we were singing that that last song, and, and this idea of every moment in our lives, can, we can enter into that with a, with a posture of, of worship. Um, Brother Lawrence, uh, one, of the, one of the church uh, fathers, wrote a book called The Practice of the Presence of God, um, and, and it, it simply kind of carries this idea that, that whether you are peeling potatoes, whether you are washing dishes, whether you are changing a diaper, whether you are, are leading uh, the congregation in worship, whatever it is that you're doing, that, that this idea that God is present in that moment. And we have the opportunity either to recognize that and to respond to that or, or to ignore it. And sometimes I think it's not so much that we ignore the presence of God, it's just that we allow other things to get in the way of our ability to recognize that God is present with us. And our response in that ought to be a response of worship. And our lives are meant to be a posture of worship, a posture of of adoration. Right, in order for us to appreciate the way that that Matthew is recording this last moment that Jesus has with his disciples. And we see in, in other Gospels, if you read the Gospel of Luke, and then, as we've said, turn over to the book of Acts because we have the same author. Luke was the one who wrote the Gospel of Luke, and then Luke is also the author of the Acts or the Acts of the Apostles or the Acts of the Holy Spirit, if you want to think of it that way. There's, there's this, this moment uh, that, that's a, a little bit expanded. There's conversation that happens with, with Jesus and his disciples. But if you consider the way that Matthew wrote his Gospel, Gospel, and each of the Gospels were written by a different author for a, for a different purpose. The, the purpose underlying all of them is to make sure that this story, the Gospel, the good news of who Jesus is and what Jesus came to accomplish, that that is clear. Uh, because the, the, the Gospels were written in response to the church beginning to grow. And, and I've said this before, but like a good game of telephone, uh, the further you get from the source the more the message starts to become different or altered. And, and listen, if you, I, I mean, I, I spent years in youth ministry, and sometimes I know and I could point to the person that altered the phrase on purpose. Like, I know where it went off the rails because they chose to drive it off the rails. 
But if we're being honest and really trying to hear the message, then, then somewhere along the way it gets confused and we just say the thing that we think we heard and then the next person says the thing that they think that they heard and then by the time it gets back around to the start, we realize that maybe some of the message is the same, but ultimately it's been changed and altered. Well, as the gospel, as the, the news of Jesus and who he was and what he came to accomplish began to leave Jerusalem, the message began to change. Maybe sometimes unintentionally, but sometimes intentionally the message began to change. And all of a sudden, the news of who Jesus really was, the story that was told was that he wasn't so much that person anymore. That he wasn't God in the flesh, God incarnate, Emmanuel, God with us. Or that there were other ways to get to the Father. And so these gospel writers, as the church began to grow, these gospel writers, these men at the leading of the Holy Spirit said, all right, hold on. We have to make sure that this is understood. We have to make sure that, that what is being taught and what is being told is, is faithful to what happened. And so they took it upon themselves, again, at the leading of the Holy Spirit to record the events of the life of Jesus. And every one of them has kind of a different uh, focus. The Gospel of Mark is like fast-paced, warp-speed story of Jesus. Luke goes back to the birth of Jesus. John goes all the way back to, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So before anything ever existed, John's beginning there. God existed. And then Matthew is is focusing on the, 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 the kingship of Jesus, the deity of Jesus, and the kingdom of God specifically in a way that the other gospel writers don't. So for Jesus, here following his, his resurrection, Jesus was crucified in a tomb, wrapped in, in grave clothes, placed in a tomb, stone rolled in front of it, very similar to uh, what I read from John's gospel in the account of, of Lazarus being laid in the tomb. Jesus was placed in the tomb, stole, stone rolled in front of it on the third day at daybreak. The women went to see Jesus, went to pay their respects went to anoint his body. They weren't sure even how they were going to move the stone. They just knew that they should go because it was the right thing to do out of, out of a desire to honor him and, and maybe just out of sadness to go and be near the body of, of this one who, who they loved, this one who showed them something new about what it meant to be loved and known by God and to live a life that reflects that knowledge They go and they find that the stone has been rolled away and they see, encounter the risen Christ. If we were to back up just a little bit to verse 8. The same chapter, so the women hurried away from the tomb, afraid yet filled with joy, and ran to tell his disciples. Suddenly Jesus met them. Greetings, he said. They came to him, clasped his feet, and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee. They will see me. Imagine what this news must have been like from these women who were, yes, a part of the company who followed Jesus. But imagine what it must have been like for the disciples to hear this report. Imagine what they must have thought. These women are overcome with grief. People don't come back to life. I mean, Lazarus came back to life. We, we saw that happen. But Jesus was the one who called Lazarus back to life. Like a person who is dead cannot reanimate themselves. 
And, and yet, there's something about this, this longing, this, this hope, this desperate desire that death does not have the final say. And then maybe they remember the things that Jesus told them, the things that he predicted would happen. So the women go and tell the brothers, tell the disciples, tell the 11, because Judas is already out of the picture at this point. We, we saw him. We saw Jesus. We worshiped him. We fell at his feet. And when he told us to tell you to go to Galilee, to the mountain, and to meet him there. Then the 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshiped him. When they saw him, they worshiped him. If you were to go back to the beginning of Matthew's gospel, Matthew begins this story not at the birth of Jesus, not in the existence of, of God, in the fullness of who God is before the beginning of time as we know it, but he begins his story with a genealogy, and he begins most specifically with Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and so on. What do we understand about Abraham? What do we know about Abraham? If we were to go back to Genesis and the calling of Abram before his name was changed to Abraham. Go back to Genesis 12. The Lord said to Abram, go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all the peoples of the earth will be blessed through you. All the peoples of the earth will be blessed through you. And then at the beginning of his gospel, we see Matthew begin his account of Jesus with Abraham, the one through whom all the peoples of the earth would be blessed. And if we read that genealogy, that genealogy beginning with Abraham ends with Jesus. Jesus from the line of David. Jesus who would sit on David's throne. Jesus, the one who was promised to the people to come and be their rescue and be their hope. And so we see this fulfillment of what has been said, what was told to Abraham generations before this moment. Now Matthew is rolling all of this into this moment saying, look what's happening. God made a promise generations before. That promise is now being fulfilled. That promise is that not just the people of Israel, but the pe all the people of the earth would be blessed through Abraham's faithfulness, it culminated in the person of Jesus. And so we realize all of a sudden there's something much bigger happening than this rabbi who called this ragtag group of fishermen and tax collectors to follow him and to learn from him. There's something bigger happening in the world than what is happening in this small little corner here. That God's redemptive plan is in motion. And it is in motion through the person of Jesus. And we'll get in later uh, as we move further into the series. We'll get into what it means that we are invited to be a part of that. But the response of the disciples, as was the response of the women when they met Jesus, the response of the disciples was to worship him. Now, we do get in uh, next week to the fact that some of them doubted. And I think that's one of the greatest gifts that Matthew could give to his readers, to the hearers of this story, and to us today, that there were some in the company of the 11 who doubted. For any of you 
who have had doubt, for any of you who doubt the good news, for any of you who doubt that any of this is possible, we are in good company. What a gift we've been given to hear that some that Jesus called and were witness to the resurrection were like, "Mm, I don't know about this. That in the midst of worship, there were some doubting. We'll get to that. In order for us to appreciate the role that worship plays in living this great adventure, in living a life of the Great Commission, like making that who we are as people who seek to follow God, we have to appreciate the role that worship plays in it. Now, in order to do that, we have to understand what worship is. When, when you say worship, when you hear the word worship, we often think of what we spent time doing in here moments ago. Right? We have people who are playing instruments, singing into microphones. We are all lifting our voices together. That is worship. Right? That's true. And if you come from a more traditional setting, you're like, that is not worship. I don't see any robes. There's no pipe organ up here. I don't know what you call this, but it's not worship. Right? So if that's your background, you're like, that's worship. Those are my people, the ones that wear the robes and the suit and the coat and tie. I don't know what this joker is doing up here in Chacos and, and a, a, a you know, short sleeve button-down collared shirt, but no, this is not worshipful. I can appreciate that. But maybe worship is, is a posture of prayer. Maybe worship is taking time out of your busy day to open God's word and to say, God, I believe that there's something that you have for me in this. I believe that you spoke through these people and I believe that you're still speaking, so would you speak to me? Maybe worship is what you decide to do with your finances when you're given the invitation to bring an offering or when you're given the invitation to, to pledge toward our, our faith promise, our, the, the mission um, the missions that, that we support and, and, and have and are a part of uh, our, who we are as a church. Maybe that's worship. Maybe all of those things together are worship. In order to appreciate the role that worship plays in us living the Great Commission, we have to understand that worship is not limited to just singing. Right? And in order to understand that, we have to understand that all of us are worshipers. I was having a conversation with our worship team after they finished uh, rehearsing this morning, and, and it's such a gift to have them up there, and I'm, I'm obviously a little biased to the, the 10-year-old that was standing up here, because um, she's mine, um, and, and love to hear her sing, and uh, James said, uh, James, who plays keyboard for us, said, Vern, you ought to get up there, and, and like, you ought to lead worship together. I was like, you don't know. Like, <laughs> you don't. You don't want me uh, getting up there. Like, then it would not be worship, right? It would be a joyful noise, but it would not be, it would be a distraction. <laughs> and, and yet, it would be exercising and pouring my affection out before the Lord. So maybe that would be worship. The giving of myself before the Lord. All of us, every single one of you in this room, are worshipers. And if your response is, nope, I cannot carry a tune in a bucket, that has nothing to do with your ability to worship. Scripture is clear. If we go back to the creation account in Genesis, after God has created what we see in the account of creation, 
night and day, sun, moon, stars, earth, sea, every living creature. We, we see this captured, this, this moment where God says, let us make man in our image. In the image of God, let us create man. Which I think is easy to pass over and appreciate what the author of Genesis is trying to accomplish there. Let us create man in our image. God is not having a, a, an identity crisis. We see even there at the very beginning this idea that God exists not as a unipersonal God. Right? There are a lot of religions in this world that serve unipersonal gods, meaning they are just a, a God, a being, a person. And yet there's something about the God of creation. There's something about the God of Israel. There's something about this God that is different. Let us, God exists and has existed always complete unto himself as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Let us create man in our image. And, and we'll dive more deeply into this as we talk about the Trinity as part of this series. But I do want to, from Matthew's gospel, in Matthew chapter 17, this is where, uh, excuse me, John, John's gospel. John chapter 17 where, where John is, is capturing this, this kind of moment of prayer in, in Jesus' life. Like he takes the, the moments following the Last Supper and really slows it down and draws it out because he believes that what is happening here, what he's witnessing Jesus, is, uh, Jesus doing is incredibly important. After Jesus said this, this is John 17, 1, he looked toward heaven and prayed, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that your Son may glorify you. For you granted him authority over all people that he might give eternal life to all those you have given to him. Now this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I have brought you glory on earth by finishing the work you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. So we see in just this moment of prayer that Jesus has with the Father, this idea and this desire to bring glory to the Father. Jesus is not asking for glory for himself. In fact, if he's asking for any glory for himself, it's so that he might reflect it and deflect it back to the Father, back to the one who sent him. Right, so if this is by nature who God is as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, each person of the Trinity just deferring glory to the other persons of the Trinity, giving glory and honor and worship and finding joy in doing that, then it tells us something about what we were created for. Right? We spend so much time and energy, particularly at a young age, maybe if you're in a quarter-life crisis or a midlife crisis, like we ask this question, what is my purpose? What is it that I'm supposed to be doing in this world? This gives us a window into what we were created for. We were all, if we were created in the image of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, who exist in relationship, in perfect union, a relationship in which glory is being given from one person of the Trinity to the other's, in which there is gladness and joy in that, it means that we were existed, we exist, we were created for the purpose of giving glory to the one who created us. A God who is unipersonal 
would, would create humanity, would create people because that God needs to be worshipped. But a God who is complete unto himself in relationship and exists as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, all parts of the Trinity deferring and giving glory to the others and finding joy and completeness in that, that God does not need to create humanity because God needs to be worshipped. God creates humanity so that God can share his glory with humanity so that it might be returned to him. You are created in the image of that God. You are created as what? A worshiper. Every single one of you, every single one of us are all worshipers. And the question that we have to wrestle with is who or what are you worshiping? To whom or what do you assign glory in your life? If all we think about as worship simply being what we do when we come together on Sunday mornings, if worship is relegated to singing alone, it means that I can compartmentalize that. It means I can say, oh, I went to worship or I worshiped. In that moment, for the time that you are here, perhaps there was a time when your, your affection was stirred for the Lord, when your attention was fixed on God. But what happens when you leave this place if all you understand worship to be is singing? It means that you begin assigning glory to other things and other people in your life that cannot bear up under the weight of it. Because none of them are truly worthy of that glory. None of them are truly worthy of that worship. All right, we see it in the political world. We see it in whatever your favorite news source is. We see it in the people that we elevate and lift up and place hope in in our lives because we think that if that person just is able to make the right decision, if that policy is pushed through, if whatever it may be, if this person comes through for me, if, if I give myself this relationship and this person loves me in response, then, then, then I will ha- find fulfillment, then I will find joy, then I will find meaning or the way of life that I'm trying to craft and create for myself will be protected. But nothing that we assign glory to other than God can bear up under the weight of that glory. We do it to so many things and people in our lives. I heard there was a worship service at Kid Brewer Stadium yesterday because we're assigning glory to those guys on the football field. Now maybe you could say, no, I was just, I was just I was pulling for them. Like I was doing my part, right? I was trying to encourage them with everything that I have. Some of you can't talk today because of that, because you're giving your all. I see you, Justin. <clears throat> we should enjoy that. Right? We should enjoy pulling for those sports teams. We should give all of our energy to supporting what they are doing on the field. But if we place all of our hopes in the outcome of that game, then we realize that it's ultimately empty. And, and it should make us ask the question and wrestle with, am I assigning more value and more worth to what happens over the course of a game than I am to who God is and what might happen in me and to me and through me if I assign glory to the place where it's truly meant to be on the one to whom, on the one who, who is truly worthy of that glory. And, and maybe you're like, whatever, I'm not a sports person. There is someone or something in your life 
to which you are assigning glory, someone or something in your life that you are worshiping. Louis Giglio says that if we follow the the, the path of our, our, our time and our talent and our treasure and the way that we expend those things at the end of that path is a throne and on that throne is the thing that we are worshiping. And maybe it is God, but maybe it's not. Maybe we've become convinced that it is Life exists and people exist and things exist for our benefit and for our good. And, and that's, the, that's the lie that was told at the very beginning, the lie that we fell prey to at the very beginning. If we go back to that creation story in Genesis. Genesis chapter 3, now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. This lie that, hey, God is withholding something from you. God is, God is holding you down. God is not allowing you to reach your full potential. And if you eat that fruit, you'll be like God. And that lie has been perpetuated in the lives of people every day since then. If you can just achieve this, if this person will just give you this, if this relationship just works out the way that you want it to, if you just get that promotion, then you'll reach that place that you were meant to be. And praise God that we have in Jesus someone who was tempted with that same lie and yet was able to withstand it. If you look at Matthew chapter 4, Matthew's account of Jesus' temptation. The final temptation in Matthew 4, 8, again the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All this I will give you, he said, if you will bow down and worship me. Jesus said to him, away from me, Satan, for it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Where is that written? That's one of the what? Commandments. Jesus is responding to this lie with the truth. But imagine what that temptation must have been for Jesus. All this I will give you if you will bow down and worship me. What ultimately happens in the life of Jesus? Philippians chapter 2. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus was exalted to that highest place and given the name that is above every name. That there is nothing in all of creation that is not subject to Jesus. 
that he has been given authority over everything, which we'll talk about in the coming weeks. But it's not because Jesus chose the shortcut, but imagine how tempting that invitation must have been. Because Jesus, being fully God and fully man, would have known what is waiting for him. That the means by which humanity would be rescued, the means by which he would receive the name and be given the name that is above every name, the, ne- the means by which he would have authority over everything is the cross, is suffering. How tempting must it have been? Jesus, fully God, fully human. How tempting must it have been in Jesus' flesh to say, gosh, that would be a shortcut indeed. All the kingdoms in heaven and on earth would be mine. And I could do it by avoiding the suffering. And yet what Paul writes in, in what is one of the earliest hymns of the early church is that Jesus was given that name that is above every name because Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on the cross. The key to worship, the key to understanding worship, The key to appreciating the value and the importance of worship in our own lives is humility. Jesus chose the way of suffering and Jesus chose the way of the cross because his deepest desire was to honor the Father, to assign glory to the Father and the Father's plan to rescue humanity and to restore all of creation to the way that it was intended to be before sin came in and broke it. Jesus was glorified because he chose to glorify the Father. He chose humility. In that commandment, you shall have no other gods before me. You shall form nothing in in the image of any god and worship it. God, God does not hold out the possibility that we will worship nothing. That's important for us to understand. We will always worship something. The question is, who or what are we worshiping? Because unless it is God, we will find that that thing will let us down, that it will leave us dejected, that it will leave us confused, that it will leave us broken, it will leave us longing for more, it will leave us with a void that we just somehow can't seem to fill. Because we were never intended to assign glory and worship to things that are not God. God intends for us to enjoy the things that he gives us, absolutely. A football game like yesterday, gosh, enjoy the heck out of that thing. A great meal, a great tailgate, enjoy those things. Time with friends and family, a relationship, enjoy those things that God has given you. But every good thing that God gives you is meant to point you, is is meant not to terminate with that thing. It is instead meant to point you to the giver of that good gift. That your worship might not be for that thing or for that person, that your worship might be for the one who gave you that good gift. That when you cut into a good meal, when you share time with friends and family, when 
you experience a beautiful sunrise, when you get to be a part of something so much larger, larger than yourself, like 40-some thousand people cheering on two football teams, you can say, God, thank you for this gift. Thank you for your goodness. Thank you for the fact that you're so selfless in your giving. The number of ways that God is seeking to grab your attention are nearly endless. I wonder what our lives might begin to look like. I wonder how we might begin to look as a people of God, as a church, if we assign worship to the one who is truly deserving. C.S. Lewis says it this way. I'm going to close with this, and then we'll be invited to the Lord's table. And we actually heard from Lewis on this when we were in our series on the Psalms, but I I believe it's it's too good not to bring to bear on our understanding of worship. He says, I think we delight to praise what we enjoy because the praise not merely expresses but completes the enjoyment. It is its appointed consummation. It is not out of compliment that lovers keep on telling one another how beautiful they are. The delight is incomplete until it is expressed. It is frustrating to have discovered a new author and not be able to tell anyone how good he is, to come suddenly at the turn of the road upon some mountain valley of unexpected grandeur and then to have to keep silent because the people with you care for it no more than a tin can in the ditch, to hear a good joke and find no one to share it with. The Scotch Catechism says that man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. But we shall then know that these are the same thing. Fully to enjoy is to glorify. In commanding us to glorify him, God is inviting us to enjoy him. In commanding us to glorify him, God is inviting us to enjoy Friends, as you leave this place, as you go into your week, I want to invite you to consider, first, what are those things in your life that maybe are receiving your worship and your glory above God? And in doing so, how are those things distracting you from from worship of the one who is truly the giver of all that is good and the giver of life? And then what might it look like to begin to take on a posture of worship before the Lord? Maybe it is singing. Maybe it's, it's going back and, and listening to our worship team on, on our live stream. Maybe it's finding your, your favorite, you know, worship music in your car and just, just going, just giving it, cranking it to 11 and giving it your all. Maybe it's, it's stopping and actually taking on a posture of humility and, and kneeling before the Lord in prayer finding that that maybe stooping low and and lowering yourself helps you to maybe put yourself in the right place before the Lord. Maybe it is allowing just praise to ever be on your lips. I was blessed to have a grandmother who it was just this constant, like under her breath, this constant utterances of of worship and praise and I love to hear the way that she said it she would just just thank God for her grandchildren only she said we were her grandchildren like she said Saturday like Saturday it was beautiful but just this constant 
utterance of praise and thanksgiving to God. Like we pray before a meal, but like do you ever, when you bite into a good meal, just, oh God, thank you for the gift of taste. Thank you for flavor. And it may seem silly, but just the everyday things in life find that if we begin to assign worship to the one who is worthy, then maybe we begin to enjoy and find fulfillment and joy in this life the way that we were intended to. And it's all possible. It's all possible because of the one who came and gave his life. The one who humbled himself, who didn't seek glory for himself, but sought glory for the Father who sent him. That his chief desire above all things was to honor God in accomplishing the work of rescuing humanity from our brokenness, of helping us to see the delusion of the lie that our first parents bought into, and to rescuing us from that. We get to experience that and remember that when we come to the Lord's table together.